we must not anticipate the ground which we hope to cover in later chapters except to say here that a great problem which confronted God and which we make so bold as to say could never have been solved by either human or angelic intelligence was how mercy might act freely without justice being insulted or how justice might exact its full due without mercy's hand being tied. A marvelous, perfect, and completely satisfactory solution to this problem has been found and furnished in the satisfaction made to God by the meditorial Redeemer. It is in this satisfaction that mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85.10 It is this satisfaction which has enabled God to be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3.26 Section 4. The Glory of God Rightly has it been said that the ultimate reason and motive of all God's actions are within himself. Since God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, that which was his first motive in creating the universe must ever continue to be the ultimate motive or chief end in every act concerned in its preservation and government. But God's first motive must have been just the exercise of his own essential perfections and in their exercise and manifestation of their excellence. This was the only end which could have been chosen by the divine mind in the beginning before the existence of any other subject. That's from the Atonement by Dr. A. A. Hodge. The scriptures are very explicit on this point. The Lord hath made all things for himself, Proverbs 16.4. For him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11.36. Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created, Revelation 4.11. The ultimate motive, therefore, which moved God to ordain Christ as satisfaction for the failed responsibilities of his people must have been the divine glory and not the effects intended to be produced in the creature. But the glory is manifested excellence and moral excellence is manifested only by being exercised. The infinite justice and love of God both find their highest conceivable exercise in the sacrifice of his own son and the substitute of guilty men. God did ordain to have other sons besides Christ, Romans 8:29, but it was in order that they might behold his glory, John 17:24, and that he might be glorified in them, John 17:10. To ordain Christ to come into this world as man only upon the occasion of man's sin and for the work of redemption would be to subject Christ unto us and to make our good the end of God's actions. Such a conception is not only extremely absurd, but terribly impious. Adam was not made for Eve, but Eve for Adam. And as the woman is the glory of man, 1 Corinthians 11.7, so the saints are called the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 8.23. And as the saints are Christ, so is Christ and the mediator, God's, 1 Corinthians 3.23. Number five, the covenant of God. Though we have made this heading distinct from the preceding four, yet we would point out that it is in the everlasting covenant we find the will, the love, the righteousness, the glory of God, united as the moving cause or causes of the perfect provision found in the satisfaction of Christ. As we have insisted in previous paragraphs, had God so pleased, he might never have created a single being to admire his perfections. When creatures were admitted to that wondrous spectacle and then became guilty of dishonoring him, he might have further revealed himself only in wrath, pouring out the vials of his indignation upon the spot which they inhabited and turning it into a scene of desolation. What would be the loss of a world to him in whose eyes it 
is as nothing, yea, less than nothing in vanity. Isaiah 40:17. It follows from these premises, the truth of which cannot be gainsaid, that the plan which God designed for the salvation of his elect, who by nature also shared in the ruin of Adam's fall, originated not only in his sovereign grace, but was determined solely by his own imperial will. Therefore, in contemplating the work of redemption, we need to ascend to its source and begin with the consideration of that eternal agreement between the person of the Godhead on which the whole dispensation of grace to fallen men is founded. That agreement is spoken of in the scripture as the everlasting covenant, Hebrew 13:20. Chapter 3, The Atonement, Its Necessity. In employing this term, the necessity of the atonement, we are making use of an expression which calls for careful definition and explanation. Unfortunately, many writers have failed to perform this duty with the consequence that loose and oftentimes most God-dishonoring views are entertained upon this aspect of our subject. To say that God must or must not do certain things is a language of fearful impiety unless expressively warranted by the very words of Holy Writ. We are living in a day which is strongly marked by irreverence and the most degrading views of the Almighty are now entertained by some who imagine their views of the Almighty are quite orthodox. It would be a simple matter for us to give illustrations and proof of this, but we refrain from defiling our readers. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Suffice it now to point out once more that never was there a time when God's people more earnestly needed to heed that word, prove all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 The Lord of hosts is excellent in counsel and excellent in working, Isaiah 28.29 Infinite wisdom never acts aimlessly. God, who is perfect in knowledge, does nothing without good reason. All his works are proportioned according to his unerring design. This is true alike in his acts of creation, providence, and grace. At the close of the six days' work we read, and God saw everything that he had made and beheld, it was very good. Genesis 1.31 Concerning his government over us, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And as for the operation of his grace, faith unhesitatingly affirms he had done all things well, Mark 7:37. Now the most wondrous of all God's works is that which was performed by his Son here upon earth. When we attempt to contemplate what that work involved, we are lost in amazement. When we seriously endeavor to gauge the depths of unutterable shame and humiliation into which the Beloved of the Father entered, we are awed and staggered that the Eternal Son of God should lay aside the robes of his ineffable glory and take upon him the form of a servant, that the ruler of heaven and earth should be made under the law, Galatians 4.4, 4, that the creator of the universe should tabernacle in this world and have not where to lay his head, Matthew 8.20, is something which no finite mind can comprehend, but where carnal reason fails us, a God-given faith believes and worships. As we trace the path which was trod by him who was rich yet for our sake became poor, we cannot feel but feel that we are entering the realm of mystery, the more so when we learn that every step in his path has been ordered in the eternal counsels of the Godhead. Yet when we find that path entailing for the one in whom the Father was well pleased, immeasurable sorrow, unutterable anguish, ceaseless ignominy, bitterest hatred, relentless persecution, both from men and Satan, we are made to marvel. 
And when we find that path leading to Calvary, and there behold the Holy One nailed to the cross, our wonderment deepens. But when Scripture itself declares that God not only delivered up Christ into the hands of earth's vilest wretches to be reviled and blasphemed, that God himself was not merely a spectator of that awful scene, that he not only beheld the sufferings of heaven's darling, but that he also smote him, scourged him with the rod of his indignation, and called upon the sword to smite his fellow, Zechariah 13:7. we are moved to reverently inquire into the needs be for such an unparalleled event that the incarnation, humiliation, and crucifixion of the Son of God were necessary, no one whom, by grace, bows implicitly before the word of truth can doubt for a moment. The language of Christ himself on this point is too plain to be misunderstood. To Nicodemus he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3:14-15. To his disciples he declared how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day, Matthew 16:21. So too on the day of his resurrection he asked, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, Luke 24:26. Nevertheless, plain and positive as is the language of those verses, we need to be much upon our guard lest we draw from them a conclusion which will clash with other scriptures and lead us into a most dishonoring conception of God. From the passages just quoted and others of a similar character, not a few good men have drawn the inference that the sufferings of Christ were an absolute necessity and that the very nature of God rendered them so indispensable that apart from them the salvation of sinners was impossible, yea, that no other possible alternative, alternative presented itself to the omniscience of God. To such assertions we can not assent, for they go beyond the expressed language of Holy Writ. However plausible the reasoning may be, however logical the deduction, we must, for Scripture is silent, resist a conclusion so momentous to say that the all-wise God himself could find no other way of saving sinners consistently with his holiness and justice, that the one he has is highly presumptuous. To declare that omniscience was hapless, that God was obliged to adopt the means which he did, is perilously naive into blasphemy. To affirm that God has selected the best possible way to magnify all his perfections in the redemption of his people is to affirm that which is honoring to deity, but to assert that this was the only way is going beyond what Scripture declares. That supremest wisdom and supremest love would seek the noblest means to achieve the most glorious ends, we firmly believe, but to conclude that God was unable to contrive any other method is mere fatalism and, we might add, semi-atheism. According to theorizings of some theologians, we ought to change Ephesians 1.11 so that it reads, He worketh all things after the necessities of his own nature. Not so did Christ reason in Gethsemane. He did not accept the bitter cup because of the inexorableness of God's nature, but out of submission to his will. From the words of our Savior in the garden, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, it has been inferred that it was impossible it should do so. In one sense, that is true. God had ordained that Christ should die. The terms of the everlasting covenant required it. The will of God demanded it, so die he must. But this is a very different thing from saying that when the Godhead held their counsels, no other alternative could be devised, 
that the death of Christ was an absolute and unavoidable necessity, it is indeed most striking to note and worthy of our most reverent attention that at the very time our agonizing Savior presented his petition, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Mark 14.36 In summing up this point, let us never forget that the atonement originated in the mere good pleasure of God. He was not obliged to save any sinners. He was under no obligation to provide a redeemer at all. That he did so was purely a matter of grace, and in the very nature of things the bestower of grace is free, absolutely free, to bestow or withhold it, otherwise it would cease to be grace and become a debt owed to its recipient. As to the method by which God chose to manifest his grace, we can only say that the appointed mediator has answered to every perfection of God and superlatively magnified all his attributes, and that this Savior is both the gift of his love and the appointment of his will. Once again, we would remind ourselves that we are within the realm of mystery, mystery deep and insolvable to finite intelligence. The entrance of sin into the world, God's infinite abhorrence of it, the moral requirements of his government concerning its punishment, the saving of his own people from it, the magnifying of his own name by it, are some of the principal elements entering into this mystery, and the relation which the whole meditorial scheme of divine grace has thereunto is what is now to engage our attention. <clears throat> Conscience of our utter incapacity to even grapple with, much less solve a problem so profound, Conscience that reasoning thereon is worse than futile, we would prayerfully turn in humble dependence upon the Spirit of Truth to the Holy Scriptures to ascertain what light God has been pleased to throw upon this mystery of mysteries. Number one, the atonement was necessitated by the will of God. Unless this be our starting point, we are certain to, certain to err. God's word implicitly declares that he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. The whole extent of this passage contains a revelation of God's eternal counsels concerning his own people. It takes us back before the foundation of the world to the time when he chose them in Christ. While it makes known that it was in love, he predestinated them into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, it at once adds that this purpose was according to the good pleasure of his will, verse 5. It is in Christ that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace, verse 7. Yet right after we are told, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasures which he has purposed in himself, verse 9. The above passage ought to make it abundantly plain to every impartial mind that the atonement or redemption which God has so graciously provided for his elect sprang from no obligation either in his own nature or from any claims which his creatures had upon him. There have been not a few writers and preachers who have blasphemously asserted that the fall of man obligated God to provide a Redeemer. They have had the infantry to affirm that since the Creator permitted Adam to bring ruin upon himself and his descendants, the least he could do was to raise up a restorer. They say the exigencies of the situation which sin introduced into the world required that some remedy be given that would neutralize its baneful effects. In short, these transducers of the Most High have argued that the atonement was imperative if God was to justify his creation of man and vindicate himself for allowing him to lose his original uprightness. It is to such arrogant rebels that Jude 10 refers, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. 
Others who gave vent to the enmity of the carnal mind against God in a more moderate form have insisted that the benevolence of God required him to provide a Savior for sinners, while allowing that man himself is to shoulder the full blame for the condition in which he now finds himself, while granting that God has justly punished the disobedience of our first parents and ordaining that all their descendants shall taste the bitterness of sin's wages, yet they imagine that God's pity for Adam's fallen children obliged him to provide a Savior for sinners. A sufficient refutation of this widely held error is found in the Creator's treatment of the angels that fell. No Savior was provided for them. God spared not the angels which sinned, 2 Peter 2.4. There is plain proof that the benevolence of God did not render the atonement imperative. Whatever claims an unfallen creature may have upon God, certainly a rebel against him is entitled to nothing but summary judgment. Nor can offenders against his moral government by anything they perform lay him under obligation to furnish them with a legal ground of deliverance from sin. To say that they can would be investing guilty sinners with the power to control the divine lawgiver and would completely divest God's grace of its character of sovereign, free, and unmerited favor. No, there was nothing either in the perfections of God's character nor in the claims of his creatures which rendered the atonement an absolute necessity. God's purpose to save a remnant according to the election of grace arose solely out of his own free and sovereign will the provision of a Savior to save his people from their sins sprang from naught but God's own determination. Number two, the atonement was necessitated by the law of God. In saying that the atonement was necessitated by the law, we are not contradicting what has been said above, as will plainly appear if close attention be given to the sentences immediately following. The sovereign will of God was exercised in at least two things with respect to the atonement. First, in his original purpose to save sinners, for that was solely his mere good pleasure. Second, in the process decreed whereby they should be saved, namely, through the vicarious work of a Redeemer. Having purposed to save his people from the wrath to come, it pleased God to resolve that their sins should be remitted in a way whereby his law should be honored and magnified. But let it be carefully remembered that in this, too, God acted quite freely and not from any constraint. The law itself is of his own appointment and not something superior to himself. Having purpose to save, the everlasting covenant was drawn up, and the mediator, having freely accepted its terms and having voluntarily placed himself under the law, thenceforward all was done in obedience to the law. Thus the eternal three, having elected that redemption should be effected under the law, all was wrought out in perfect accordance with the law. It is in the light of these facts that the passage is quoted in an earlier paragraph respecting the relative necessity of the atonement are to be interpreted. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There was no absolute necessity in either case. It was sovereign grace, pure and simple, which provided a way of life for the guilty Israelites who were dying in the wilderness. It was by divine appointment that both the brazen serpent and the antitype were lifted up. So of Matthew 16:21, Christ must go up to Jerusalem and be killed. Why? Because God had so ordained, because the terms of everlasting covenant so required. So it was not possible for the cup to pass from the agonizing Savior. Why? Because God had willed that salvation should come to his people by his drinking it. Thus it had been unalterably determined. Without shedding of blood there could have been no remission, 
as what scripture nowhere affirms, but under the regime God has instituted without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. It has been well said that the work of redemption as well as the course of nature proceeds in accordance with a predetermined plan and under absolute and invariable law, law quite as exact as that which governs the material universe. Every end contemplated by the divine mind in the realm of the spiritual and all means for its attainment under the reign of absolute law were determined with infinite exactness from the beginning. Dr. J. Amar. The analogies between the reign of law in the natural and in the moral spheres are both close and numerous, the former serving to adumbrate the latter. For example, first, every law in the natural world, such as that of the recurring seasons or of gravitation, have been ordained and imposed by the Creator according to His own sovereign will. So too has every law in the moral realm, as that of sowing and reaping, a sin and its punishment, been appointed by God. Second, the reign of law, as such, is invariable and inexorable. It knows of no exceptions. If the dearest child on earth drinks poison by mistake, it produces precisely the same effect as though the vilest wretch had deliberately taken it to end his earthly existence. Third, yet though law and its demands cannot be defined by him with impunity, a higher law may be set in motion reversing the action of an inferior. Poisons have their antidotes. The law of gravity may be overcome by lifting an object from the ground. Law is never suspended, but higher power may intervene and deliver from the effects of a lower by magnifying a superior law. This was the case with the atonement. Law requires conformity to its precepts. The more perfect a law, the greater the obligations to respect it. Given a law which is holy and just and good, Romans 7.12, and obedience to it becomes imperative. For God to repeal or even suspend it would be tantamount to acknowledging that there was some defect in it. This could never be. Therefore, creatures made under that law must of necessity render obedience to it. In case of their failure, then, before it were possible to justify them, that is, pronounce them righteous, up to the required standard, another must fulfill that law on their behalf, and his righteousness or obedience be imputed to their account. This has actually been done. Christ was made under the law, Galatians 4.4, fulfilled it, Matthew 5.17, and his obedience has been placed to the legal credit of all his people, Romans 5.19, so that they are now made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The law not only requires obedience to its precepts, but demands the punishment of its transgressors. Its invariable sentence is, The soul that sinneth it shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. Inasmuch as God himself declares this, and he cannot lie, it inevitably ensues that wherever sin is found, death with all it includes must certainly follow. The Lord has expressively affirmed that he will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 34.7. The only way of escape for lawless transgressors is for another to suffer the penalty in their stead. Under the regime which God has instituted, were he to pardon without satisfaction, made to his broken law by a substitute being paid sin's wages, then God would not only trample upon his own law, but disregard his solemn threatening, and Scripture says he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13.
Therefore did God himself provide that wondrous sacrifice upon which the righteous penalty of the law fell. To understand aright the work of redemption, it is all important that we should hold correct views of the law of God which, under which man has transgressed and the state in which he by rebellion has fallen. The law of God points out the duty of man, requiring from him that which is right and just. It cannot be altered in the least degree or exact, more or less. It is therefore an unalterable rule of righteousness. The law necessarily implies as essential to it a sanction and a penalty, a penalty exactly fitted to the magnitude of the crime in transgressing it. Every creature who is under this law is bound by infinite obligations to obey it, without the slightest deviation from it throughout the whole of its existence. But by transgressing it, man has righteously incurred its penalty and fallen under its curse. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of law to do them. Galatians 3.10 Now the curse under which sinners have fallen cannot be removed nor the transgressor released until full satisfaction has been made to it. Such satisfaction the sinner himself is utterly unable to render. By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20 because the law of God is an unalterable expression of his will and moral character, neither its demands nor threatenings can be abated. The authority of the law must be maintained. To pardon without a satisfaction would be con acting contrary to the law. Thus, inseparable barrier in the way of sinner's deliverance is what underlies the relative necessity for the mediator and deliverer. In order for the curse of the law to be removed from him who had incurred its anathema, it must fall upon another who has made a curse in his stead. It is at this point the amazing riches of divine grace have been displayed. Not only was the Christ of God made under the law, not only did he render perfect obedience to its precepts, but in addition, a wonder of wonders, he was made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Him did God himself foreordain to be a perpetuation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, that he might be, parenthesis, not merely merciful, but that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Romans 3, 25, 26. Number three, the atonement was necessitated by sin. In asserting that the atonement was necessitated by sin, let it not be supposed for a moment that the entrance of sin into this world was a calamity unanticipated by the Creator and that the atonement is his means of remedying a defect in his handiwork. Far, far from it. So far from man's fall being unforeseen by God, the Lamb was foreordained before the foundation of the world, First Peter 1, 19:20. The tragedy of Eden was no unlooked-for catastrophe, but foreknown and permitted by God for his own wise reasons. No, we employ the term used in this third heading in the sense of a conditional necessity. As we sought to show in the previous chapter, the ultimate reason and motive of all God's acts are found within himself, and that reason and motive is ever his own glory. But glory is manifested excellency. Therefore God magnifies his manifest glory by the exercise and exhibition of his manifold perfections. Wondrously has God used sin as an occasion for displaying his own attributes. He has employed it as a dark background from which has shone forth the more resplendently the beauties of his wisdom, his holiness, his faithfulness, and his grace. Thus he has made the very wrath of man to praise him, Psalms 76.10. 
God is ineffably holy. As such, he is absolutely free from every vestige of moral pollution. He delights in whatever is pure, and therefore he hates whatever is impure. Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13 Now sin is directly opposed to the holiness of God, for it is essentially impure, filthy, abominable, therefore it is the object of his unceasing detestation. How then shall God's abhorrence of sin be manifested but by his punishment of it? The atonement relatively necessitated by sin is obvious from other considerations. Had the creature never fallen, he had never merited sin's wages. Had he never transgressed against God's law, no satisfaction had been required for its outraged honor. Sin, being obnoxious to both the nature and the law of God, renders those who have committed it subject to his displeasure. Again, sin is a grievous dishonor to the manifested glory of God, Romans 3.22, a direct insult offered to the high majesty of heaven, and were sin pardoned without an adequate satisfaction, it would be tantamount to saying that God may be insulted with impunity. But if the holiness of God requires that sin shall be punished, if the law of God requires a satisfaction it should be rendered in its honor, how can its transgressors possibly escape? Sin has imposed a gulf between the thrice holy one and those who have rebelled against him, Isaiah 59.2. Man is utterly incapable of filling up that gulf or of passing over it. Well might Job exclaim, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both, 9.32.33. Ah, a daysman, a mediator, one able to come betwixt is what was so urgently required. And what the terrible condition of fallen sinners needed, the matchless grace of God freely provided. Christ is the divine answer to the devil's overthrow of our first parents. And in Christ and by Christ, every attribute of God has been glorified and every requirement of his law satisfied. Through the incarnation, life, and death of his blessed Son, God has shown to all created intelligences what a terrible thing sin is, what a dreadful breach it had made between himself and his creatures, how impartial is its, his justice, and what an ocean of love is in the, his heart to promote the happiness of his people, and above all, he has secured and advanced his own manifest glory by the honoring of all his attributes. Through the atonement, God has been vindicated. But let the final thought of our chapter be this. It was sin which required the atonement. Let each truly Christian reader make it individual. It was my sins that brought down the eternal Son of God to this world of darkness and death. Had there been no other sinner on earth but me, Christ had certainly come here. Yes, it was my dreadful and excuseless sins which caused the Lord of glory to become the man of sorrows. It was my sins which required the beloved of the Father to descend into such unfathomable depth of shame and suffering. It was for me the ineffable Holy One was made a curse. It was for me he endured the cross, suffered separation for God, and tasted the bitterness of death. Oh, may the realization of this make me hate sin and cry daily to God for complete deliverance from it. May the realization of grace, so amazing, constrain me to live only for him, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 Chapter 4 The Atonement Its Prerequisites 
Before we are in a position to discern what was required in order for an atonement to be made for the sins of believers, or more specifically, what were the qualifications which must be possessed by him who should render an acceptable satisfaction to God, it is essentially that we should know something of the actual nature of the atonement itself. This we shall endeavor to define at length in the chapters which are to immediately follow, but to pave the way for a more intelligent consideration of the perfections of the mediator, let us briefly state what it was that Christ came here to do. The Son of God became the Son of Man in order that the sons of men might become sons of God. But these sons of men were not merely creatures, they were fallen and sinful creatures, and as such hateful to God, and under the condemnation of his inexorable law. Sin has produced a tremendous gulf between the thrice holy God and the rebellious children of Adam. Man has no ability whatever to fill in or pass over that gulf. Not only is he alienated from his maker, Ephesians 4.18, but that law of which he has broken insists upon its full reparation, and this man is incompetent to render. Thus his case is desperate indeed. His only hope, as we sought to show near the close of our last chapter, lies in a mediator espousing his cause, a mediator acceptable to that God whom man has so grossly and grievously offended, a mediator both willing and qualified to undertake for him. But where was such a one to be found? Where was one who could bridge the awful gulf sin had made, who was fitted to be entrusted with the interests of the Godhead, and who was capable of representing those who were in the scale of being so far, far below him? Although man had remained immaculately innocent, Yet his condition would have been too mean for him to approach to God without a mediator. What, then, can he do after having been plunged by his fatal fall into death and hell, defiled with so many blasphemies, putrefying in his own corruptions, and the word overwhelmed by every curse? Since our iniquities, like a cloud, intervene between us and God, entirely alienating us from heaven, no one that could approach to God could be a mediator for the restoration of peace. But who could have approached him? Could any of the children of Adam? No. They, with their first parents, dreaded the divine presence. What then could be done? Our situation was truly deplorable unless the divine majesty itself would descend to us, for we could not ascend to it. Thus it was necessary, as arising from the heavenly decree, that the Son of God should become Emmanuel, that is, God with us, Calvin's Institute, Book 2, Chapter 12. Instead of removing... This only seems to increase the difficulty. As we have pointed out above, atonement could only be effected by a full satisfaction rendered to the law, and this involved two things. First, a perfect obedience given to all its precepts. Second, a full endurance of its unrelenting punishment. But how could a divine person enter the place of subserviency and become subject to a law's demands? And again, how could a divine person suffer and die? This seems an insolvable problem, yet divine wisdom provided a glorious solution. One of the eternal three, without in any wise ceasing to be God, took upon him the form of a servant and became man. A divine incarnation was undertaken in order to accomplish sin's expiation. The eternal word becoming flesh was a gracious means to a glorious end. It was that he might mediate between God and his people. A mediator is one who intervenes between two parties at variance and makes peace. He must of necessity be a different person from each of the parties whom it is his design to reconcile, he can neither be the party which is offended nor the party which has given offense. The party offended may forgive the offender, but in such a case a mediator is not wanted. The party offending may be sorry for his conduct and earnestly desire that peace be made, 
but he may have no access to the party offended, or the latter may reject his advances because he does not deem the proffered satisfaction to be adequate. In this case, a third party may interpose to adjust the difference by the proposal of terms in which both will acquiesce. What has just been pointed out raises a further difficulty. Was not God and the Son, the party offended by the sinner, equally with the Father and the Spirit? Assuredly, for in his essential being, he is one with them. But the Scripture not only reveal the absolute unity of nature and essence in the three persons of the Godhead, they also make known an economy or arrangement among those persons by which different characters and offices were assigned to each, and new relations are sustained by them toward one another and toward us. In the economy of redemption it is, and its connections with the world, the Father appears in the character of the supreme governor of heaven and earth, the Son as mediator, and the Spirit as the applier of redemption. In his office of mediator, Christ does not press the claims of justice against sinners, but stands forth as their friend, rescuing them from their perilous situation by rendering satisfaction for them to their offended sovereign. The necessity of the mediation of Christ arises from the existence of sin, which being contrary to the nature and revealed will of God renders those who have committed it obnoxious to his displeasure. As they had no means of appeasing his anger, the interposition of another person was requisite to atone for their guilt and lay the foundation of peace. This is the great design of his office, but it extends to all the acts by which sinners are actually brought into a state of reconciliation, are fitted for holding communion with God, and are raised to perfection and immutable felicity in the world to come. It comprehends the particular offenses which our Savior is represented as sustaining, the prophetical, the sacerdotal, and the regal, and it is by executing, executing these that he completely performs the duties and realizes the character of the mediator, Dr. J. Dick. Let us now particularize by endeavoring to point out what was required in the one who should make atonement for sinners to God. Number one, the mediator must be a man. The mediator between God and men cannot be God only or man only. This is taught in Galatians 3.20. A mediator is not of one, but God is one. A mediator supposes two parties between whom he intervenes, but God is only one party. Consequently, the mediator between God and man must be related to both and be equal of either. He cannot be simply God, who is only one of the parties and has only one nature. Therefore, the eternal word must take man's nature into union with himself if he would be a mediator between God and man. The same truth is taught in 1 Samuel 2.25. For if one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Therefore, when he, the mediator, cometh into the world, he saith, A body hast thou prepared for me. Hebrew 10.5. That was written by Dr. J. Shedd. Relationship of nature to those for whom atonement was made is an essential element in this validity. Christ was required to be real and proper man as well as true God. To qualify him for the work of redemption, he needed to possess opposite attributes, a frail and mortal nature combined with ineffable dignity of person. Humanity was requisite to fit the Messiah for suffering, to render himself susceptible of pain and death, to make it possible for him to offer himself as a sacrifice. Equally so was the possession of human nature required in order to impart validity to what he did to give to his obedience and suffering an essential value in the estimation of God's law. The work of our redemption being a moral satisfaction to the law of God for the sins of men, 
there existed a moral fitness that the satisfaction should be made by one in the nature of those who had sinned. It is striking to note in the types how that redemption had to be effected by a near kinsman, Leviticus 25:25-27, and Ruth 4:7. Unless the Redeemer himself possesses the nature of those to be redeemed, the moral government of God had not been vindicated, nor the glory of divine lawgiver been maintained, nor the principles of the law been upheld. The law and its precept was suited to man, and in its curse had a claim upon man. Its requirements were such as man only could fulfill, its penalties such as one possessing the nature of man only could bear. The penalty was suffering under death, and no angel could die, Luke 20, 36. The death only of a man could possess a moral and legal congruity to the cause of a law given to man and broken by man. Thus it was not only to qualify him for suffering that the Messiah took upon him the nature of man, but to qualify him for such sufferings as should possess validity in the eye of the divine law. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Hebrews 2, 11, 17. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. The law required that its subjects should love God with all his soul and serve him with all the members of his body, seeing both are gods. Now, none can do this but man who consists of soul and body. Again, the law required the love of our neighbor, but none is our neighbor but man who is of the same blood with us, hence the force of those words, that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh, Isaiah 58, 7. Hence, our surety must cherish us as one does his own flesh, and consequently we have to be members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, Ephesians 4, 30. Therefore, has the Holy Spirit joined together those two things about Christ, made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4, 4, intimating that the principal end of his incarnation was that he might be subject to the law. It is not without reason that Paul, when asked to exhibit Christ in the character of a mediator, expressively speaks of him as a man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. He might have called him God, or might indeed have omitted the appellation of man as well as that of God, but because the Spirit who spake by him knew our infirmity, he has provided a very suitable remedy against it by placing the Son of God familiarly amongst us, parenthesis, Christians, A.W. Pink, as though he were one of us. Therefore, that no one may distress himself where he is to seek the mediator or in what way he may approach him, the apostle, by denominating him a man, apprises us that he is near and even close to us since he is our own place. He certainly intends the same in Hebrews 4.15. J. Calvin. Number two, the mediator must be sinless. He who makes atonement for others must himself be entirely free from that which renders the atonement necessary. That which made atonement necessary was sin. The Redeemer must be sinless, otherwise he would require redeeming. A sinner cannot expiate his own sins, still less can he be a savior of others. Thus it was a prime prerequisite that the substitutionary victim should himself be undefiled, pure. This was plainly foreshadowed in the types. 
The lamb used in the sacrifice must be without blemish. The red heifer must not only be flawless, but also one upon which never came yoke. Numbers 19.2 The Levitical high priest was required to possess a high degree of ceremonial purity. Legal obligation to the curse may arise from one or both of two things, either from being born under the curse, that is to say, from original sin, or from becoming exposed to the penalty and consequence of a personal breach of its requirements, that is, by actual transgression. Infants of the human family are under it in the former way, adults in both, but Jesus was neither in one way or the other. Dr. W. Symington on the Atonement, 1854. Jesus was never under the Adamic covenant, and therefore the sin of our first father was never imputed to him. He was supernaturally conceived of a virgin, and therefore the virus of sin never entered his veins. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.